Hello, and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today, we present an interview of Xu Yin Yu and Trin Delaney, led by Mahmoud Ababne. My name is Paul Minier, and I am a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. Tea House is honored to be podcasting to you from Treaty 7 territory. We specifically acknowledge the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Pikani, and Kainai First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. This interview is titled, We Mean You. It is a conversation on systemic racism in the university, discussed by current and former graduate students from the University of Calgary English grad program. In this interview, issues around systemic racism within the institution are vocalized, named, and candidly explored. The students discuss anti-racism activism, along with previous and ongoing calls for action, and what their experiences have been as community members within a system that perpetuates systemic racism, including the challenges and pushback they have faced while working to enact change. Mahmoud Ababne is pursuing a PhD in English literature at the University of Calgary on Treaty 7 territory. His research centers around trans-Indigenous and post-colonial literatures, decolonization, and settler colonialism. Mahmoud is an active member of the Anti-Racism and Decolonization Community Collective. He is currently teaching a global Indigenous course at the English department. Xu Yin Yu is a third-year PhD student in the Department of English at the University of Calgary. Xu's research interests are located at the intersections of critical race theory, focusing on East Asian diaspora studies, queer theory, specifically asexuality studies, and intersectional feminist theory. Most of Xu's work is on children's and young adult literature, food studies, and popular culture. She also dabbles in creative writing. Xu received her Honours Bachelor of Arts from the University of Toronto and her Master of Arts from the University of Calgary. Trin Delaney is a writer currently based in Jojage. Trin's writing consists mostly of musings about how we got here, where we are, who we encompasses, how to care in a violent world, and how to exist in spaces that are hostile to multiplicity. Trin holds a Master of Arts in English Literature and Creative Writing from the University of Calgary, and her work was most recently published in Guts Canadian Feminist Magazine, Watch Your Head, the lead of Canadian Poets Chapbook, These Lands, a collection of voices by Black poets in Canada, and more. Good afternoon, Shu and the train, and welcome to Tea House Talks. It's my pleasure to have you here today. This episode records events that took place at the University of Calgary. We will be talking about the institution and how it trains or programs us, I mean the body of graduate students, to think in certain ways. Therefore, the title of this episode is We Mean You, which highlights the importance of self-reflection and it urges us to think of racism and injustice within our communities. 
It's easy to look far away and point out racism or systematic racism, but the difficult part is to look closely around you and understand that you might be part of it. To challenge institutionalized ways of choosing, reading, and analyzing text, it's necessary to check out from the parameters of the institution and getting involved in a process of unlearning and relearning because the institution, we believe, is established and maintained through colonial structures. So today, I'm glad to talk to both of you, Shu and Train, about the concept of the institution and the systematic racism within institutions around us. And as we are, the three of us, part of the grad students community in the English department at the University of Calgary, we would like to introduce some of the events that we witnessed uh, during our career at the university. First of all, I would like to start with Shu, and I'll ask this question for both of you, Shu and the trend. Throughout your experience at the University of Calgary, what forms of academic stubbornness you found most challenging to Indigenous students, Black students, and people of color? So thanks for having us. Um, I think if we're going to talk about the experiences that you've seen, I really want to break down the difference between what I've experienced in my MA and what I've experienced here in my PhD. Because I think our cohort does end up having a really big influence on how you end up viewing the institution as well as the systems that you're encountering. So Mahmoud, I think we actually came in at the same time. Um, I think you came in like a semester before I did. But our cohort in our MA was this very interesting split because the MA was extremely diverse. We had a lot of young women of color. We had a really diverse set of people who want to you know, research these very interesting systematic problems. But I think your PhD cohort was a bit more establishment, a bit more traditional, like what people think of when they think of English. And I think what that ended up happening was that we ended up with these really interesting divides of what people study and what people are actually looking for. So for people who are really interested in this new cutting edge of English literature, uh, we ended up taking a lot of courses that felt, uh, in my opinion, far more diverse and far more progressive, uh, as opposed to some of the much more traditionalist uh, courses that we ended up taking. So I don't think there's anything about medieval literature that is, actually I kind of do, um, there's, there's something about medieval literature that is kind of inherently problematic, uh, but that doesn't mean that all courses about it have to be problematic and that there are ways to structure it. It's just, it's really difficult and that you're kind of working against the grain of what it is that you're trying to do. And so I think that became one of the really big, uh, interesting dilemmas that I ended up facing because the MA was so very much diverse and progressive and aiming to do all of these new, interesting, cutting edge things that heading into a PhD, which had all of these structures that we're going to talk about a little bit more when we talk about things like the comp exam and the field exam, that like these structures become ways that they wear down on you and that the microaggressions that we face day to day really become compounded because it's this constant reminder that like you are dedicating years of your life, not just one or two from the MA, but you are dedicating four, five, six plus years of your life to a system that has all of these foundational barriers that are challenging you. 
And I think the one that we're going to talk about most explicitly is going to be the comprehensive exam. Um, but I think we are going to have to kind of talk about the comprehensive exam within this context of these broader systems that continue to wear it, which is like you have to take a certain number of historical requirements. Depending on what courses are being offered per semester, you may have to take a historical course, whether you want to or not. Trying to figure out the, the structures and the professors that would be most helpful to you as an ally, and those who tend to be a little bit more traditionalist in teachings, and then just kind of dealing with this compounded imposter syndrome, where you're not just talking about, you know, the theories that you're interested in, but everyone, every single person sits there and they throw certain ideas and certain foundational uh, talks at you. And they're like, this is important. This is something that you need to know. And you're like, but I don't want to necessarily like make this foundational to what I study, because that's, you know, repeating the problems of our past. So like, if you are also working in a field that has a very particular foundation, uh, you may end up constantly running into walls that you weren't even technically aware that were there. And it's just this passive way of grinding down at you. Um, I think that's why one of the most important things about uh, the challenges is like, you really do need to find that community. You really do need to find people who are able to kind of talk through to you. And it's like, no, 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 you're not like overreacting. Like this is, part of the very structure that is there. No, thank you, Shu. That's absolutely amazing. And I, I love how you brought like those conversations about cohortship and like how people think of the canon as that you should know it. If you want to be successful in the future, you, this is the base that you should know. And if you don't do that kind of base, it means that you don't understand or you will not be a successful PhD or MA English students. Uh, like you, you cannot succeed without it. It's just that, that kind of myth that like we are keeping and maintaining through different ways of gatekeeping and we will come to that and i would like now to move to the same questions to train by asking her throughout your experience at ufc what forms of academic stubbornness you found most challenging to bipoc students thanks for that question and thanks for having me today for me because as she said the MA and PhD are very different in their lengths, but also in their structure. I was only at U of C for two years and not everyone who started with me finished with me. So the cohort that I was in, I don't think was as like visibly diverse as she's co cohort, but still had a lot of like queer folks and femmes. And I think in general, like we vibed pretty well together and that community is really what made me feel comfortable with critiquing the institution more openly. So I found, I think this is often the case, not always the case, but of course there's some students who are interested in, you know, the institution as it is and don't want to see it change and are happy with how everything is. Usually these are like cis white students but for the most part, people saw the opportunity for changing at the student level. I, I found the, the difficulties were more with the administration and staff. And I've been thinking about this more because I feel like the financial barrier, first of all, is one thing that's just like implicitly more difficult for BIPOC students and still very much a part of what keeps us out of the institutions. 
But I also think that navigating the administration of the university is also such a challenge for Black, Indigenous, or Asian, or yeah, like any people of color who are at the school. And then like the one that like is kind of most tangible for me is the way that profs are able to abstract and theorize the concerns of students. So anytime a complaint is made, it's, oh, we can theorize about this complaint, but we're not actually listening to like the ways that the students were hurt. We're just (laughs) going to like make our considerations and take it to the department meeting. And then afterwards, maybe the student will feel some form of justice, but also probably not because it's not the best way to deal with conflict in my opinion. That was kind of a ramble as well, but I guess those are my my three main ways that my experience at U of C was affected as like a black student. I, I love that. And particularly when you mentioned how pe- some people are comfortable with the status quo and the idea that it's important for them to maintain the status quo, which is problematic for all of us, whether you are like indigenous, black or people of color or even white, like it's problematic because there's injustice here and there's inequality and ignoring it is just so not okay and it's important to remind people that the status quo is problematic and therefore we need to change and that's like one of the changes that we will be talking about today is that is done but after like long battles is the comprehensive exam but that's really specific to English departments in general and I will now move to Shu and ask her about what's the comp exam and why is it problematic? And how do you describe your experience in challenging the comp exam? Because Shu, I know, has a really interesting story to tell about how she challenged that comp exam. Uh, so I think the comprehensive exam is very English department specific, but it's also very uh, institution specific. So the way that we kind of labeled uh, the exam that we call the comprehensive exam is a lot more traditionalist in a lot of ways. The comprehensive exams still exist in uh, various forms in various universities. It's just that they tend to have a very different scope. So for a lot of people, when they say the comprehensive exam, what they mean is something a bit closer to what we would call the fields exam. Uh, So the comprehensive exam is, as its name might imply, uh, meant to be a comprehensive view over what it is that you're studying. So for most schools uh, that are a bit more traditionalist, the comprehensive exam is a comprehensive overview of canonical English Anglo literature. Uh, so you would start out with something like Beowulf, uh, you would move through your Chaucer's, your Medievalist, your Early Modernist, your Shakespeare's. You would go through all of the different eras of, you know, English literature from England. And it's usually the greatest hits list of what people think of when you say something like English literature. So you have your neoclassicists, your romanticists, your modernists, your Victorianists, your postmodernists, um, and a few, you know, contemporary figures that most people would consider, you know, the greats of modern English literature. I think one of the fundamental flaws of the system is you're always going to be leaving out somebody if you're going to try to do basically a greatest hits list. And 
especially when you are adhering to this traditional form of the comprehensive exam, which is to study the English literary canon, what you are doing is erasing everyone else. For some schools, they've kind of merged the comprehensive exam with what we here call the field of study exam here at the University of Calgary. The field of study being what exactly it is that you study. So you might study post-colonial and world literatures. You might study Turtle Island literatures. You might study American lit, can lit. I, for example, am taking children's lit studies. For some schools, they merge the comprehensive exam and the field exam together. So you have kind of this long, uh, intensive spread uh, from the beginning of your field all the way to its modern day. For some people, it's a much more even split. So they would still have to do the whole Chaucer, uh, Shakespeare, whatever, leading up to what it is that you study. Uh, for some people, it's just starting out as you know, where did children's lit really begin? Uh, and for the Western literary canon, it would be something like the Victorian age. So you would start from there and move forward. The comprehensive exam, as we know it, so this very strict canonical Anglo-focused literature was extremely problematic because it's actually gone through quite a few iterations and the fundamental problems never seem to have gone away. And that is like some voice is always being neglected. And though literature that you end up reading become kind of like institutionalized, it becomes part of the very system that you're trying to overthrow. So I think we actually did the calculations for the comprehensive exam uh, when we wrote the letter. And we were like, you know, maybe between five and 10% of the list would be by BIPOC people. But yeah, so let's start with uh, why is it problematic? I think as with most things, if you're trying to do a greatest hits list or a short list, uh, something is going to get neglected or something is going to get forgotten or not be put on. Uh, and that's certainly the case with the comprehensive exam. Uh, when we wrote the letter for the comprehensive exam, that's my, what I want to lead to. Like you have an interesting story, you yourself, because you lead an effort to cancel this kind of exam. Can you tell us about this letter? So, so it wasn't the smartest political move, honestly, because I wrote that letter while I was in the process of prepping for and writing the comprehensive exam. <laughs> As it, it got sent just a little bit before I was taking the like actual like gotten the questions was writing it submitting the printed copies of the exam so for me it was this constant dilemma of like while I'm reading I have this thought in the back of my head being like hey you know this becomes part of your argument of what it is that we care about in the comprehensive exam as I was trying to pick out all of the quote-unquote diverse writers. I really despised the way of trying to separate and label authors in this way, but it became part of the argumentation that we were using against the department. But I was looking for, you know, writers who were not white, and it became this game of trying to be like, you know, how do I end up picking out these writers? Especially since you only start seeing non-white writers starting around the 1800s uh, and even then would be one or two texts and then followed by a list of white names. I think part of the unspoken implicit idea behind the comprehensive exam is that like you should be able to situate yourself inside of the canon 
one of the really big problematics of that was like it became this constant struggle because I couldn't situate myself in the canon. Like I didn't have a lineage to kind of build out of. Uh, and I think that becomes a very different situation for someone who has lineage to kind of trace back to find kind of being like, oh, this is where, you know, my understanding of the postmodern stream of consciousness emerged. Here are all of these ideas that I can kind of trace back to. I think when your research is tied to the marginalization that you experience as a person and a scholar and the literature that experienced the similar marginalization, by the very fact that it is marginalized uh, means that you basically don't exist in this canonical hit list. So I think it became this act of frustration like I always knew I wanted to pursue a PhD uh, and I was either going to be here at the University of Calgary or it was going to be at the University of Toronto and both schools had a comprehensive exam. So it was this barrier that I always knew I was going to hit eventually. And so I just ran into that wall hard. So yeah, so it became the, this. Was the process of you preparing for the exam that intensified that feeling of frustration because you couldn't find this this connection that you're talking about, or it's just kind of frustrating. Yeah, you are trying to learn something that you actually don't want to learn, but it's imposed on you and you don't find that connection. Is this like where you started to, to fight for canceling that comp exam? I think, yes, that was definitely one of the main motivations, like this, this constant act of frustration. But I think I think we're going to touch gently around this idea of microaggression that happens, but also the microaggressions that people don't even realize that they're perpetuating. So for example, as I continuously voice this frustration that I'm having about writing this comprehensive exam, this idea that like, you know, I don't see myself, I do not know where I'm going to get all of these ideas. The fact that I have to do all of this additional work, I kept on having people tell me that like, oh no, it's good. Like, this is why your voice is important. This is why like you can find gaps inside of the literature. Like talk about why Mole Flanders is racist. And it's something that they would never say to our colleagues who don't do this work they would never be like put in five times as much labor as all of your peers for less of a result I think they would never say that to someone who has a lineage to kind of trace through and like it is very much a battle of wills <laughs> between you and this exam if you're like I want to privilege the voices that I think are most important because you would have maybe five choices max because you're writing, whole, you're writing three of these exams and each one of them you have to pull out text and you have to like talk about them in depth and in detail and you can't, you know, talk about any of them superficially. And so you don't want to have that much overlap, which means that you are battling against a system that is trying to kind of break you down. And like, if you compare to this to the experience of someone who doesn't study that, it's possible for them to write this entire exam without having a single BIPOC author on their work cited list. Like it is very possible that they don't have to deal with the additional labor, the additional research, the additional just like dot processes. Like it's a dot that haunts you. Like it is very much like for a semester, you just sit there and you're like hyper-focused on this exam, trying to figure out this puzzle that doesn't really have an answer as opposed to, you know, someone who could trace 
this lineage out. Uh, and like, I am fully aware that as I had this conversation with other people, it very much sounds like I'm whining, like I'm whinging, to quote Game of Thrones, I'm whinging, my mouth's amusing, thus I'm whinging. But it's not the fact that like I'm jealous or I think that like it should be just as difficult for someone else to have to go through a list and be frustrated with themselves and the system to be able to analyze something that they're interested in. I think it's very much within the very structure of the exam itself, which is like the department has superimposed a structure upon you. And this structure ended up harming you because it is actively trying to uh, work against the goals that you have set for yourself as an academic, as a student, even as just like a normal test taker. And so I think that's why it was really important for me to kind of voice that with a foundation that rests upon this idea that like the comprehensive exam is fundamentally racist. Like it is perpetuating a hegemonic idea of what is important literature. And so that kind of became the linchpin that became foundational to what it is that I ended up arguing. But as it kind of circulated amongst this cohort that became very supportive, more and more questions and ideas started getting raised. And it's like, you know, here's an entire community of people who are like, this is, you know, wrong. There is problems with it. And the way that we solve this problem is by getting rid of the problem altogether. There isn't a way for us to fix the problem because the problem exists in and of itself. And I would say like the abolishment of the comp exam was a, a success for your effort. At the same time, we still now have the historical bread, which is the funniest thing ever. They call it bread, which actually is exactly what you're talking about. Like that some students need to do that and some students don't. If you are, for example, a canonical or traditional British literature kind of student, you are gonna take these courses by default because this is your field, but you will never come and take any of my courses. It's the effort that you were talking about that some students have to deal with and the emotional labor that they have to go through to make these kind of connections, but other students don't because they are considered the center that they don't need to think outside of their perspective. They are not required to take indigenous or any other texts outside of their interests because they are born into that privilege. Therefore, they don't need to think about it, which is exactly similar to the comp exam. And this structure, by the way, just to, as a note, is still exists until now. And now the grad students are fighting to abolish this requirement too, which is the historical bread. Thank you, Shu. And now I will move to Tren because she has another interesting story about the Grad Students Conference at the University of Calgary Free Exchange. And my question for you, Tren, is how does FreeX expose the ways where the institution participate in maintaining and promoting academic forms of racism? So I was a volunteer with the Free Exchange Conference last year that Shu ran and did a great job running, I think, overall. It was, a, it was a great conference and I was really excited for it because we were able to kind of subvert those expectations and accept a lot of people who were doing 
more radical work and interested in themes outside of like the colonial English canon. However, <laughs> fully recognizing that I was on the committee as was Shu, obviously, and Mahmoud, you were also on the committee, I believe, yeah. choosing the people who would come to present at FreeX. So we, we were all vetting papers together and she had ensured that the committee vetting papers comprised people from diverse fields, not just diverse racial backgrounds. So we chose what we thought was best and it was anonymous. We only had the proposals and the conference ended up going really well until one of the last presentations where a student presented a paper that used a metaphor of darkness and equated darkness with disease, evil, disability. It was just an all-around anti-Black and ableist paper. And this was in a room full of people who, who were mostly white. Some people did understand the implications of the paper, but I found that I was one of the only people who brought up the issues of anti-Black racism that were implicit, honestly explicit in the student's presentation. And I found myself being more patient than I wanted to be and asking a lot of leading questions kind of to see if the student had any awareness that their paper was anti-Black or if they would be willing to talk more about it and kind of unravel their argument and learn from the experience. But unfortunately, as it often goes, without saying it explicitly, it was not an effective way to really tell the student what my criticism of the paper really was. And I don't think that's because I wasn't communicating effectively. I think it's because there is so much privilege and there's so much lenience given to white students when it comes to talking about race that is not given to Black, Indigenous, or people of color when we're talking about white supremacy in contexts such as these. So afterwards, I went up to the student and talked to them. And I said, as, like, as nicely as I possibly could, because I wasn't interested in hurting this person. I think that it's more useful in general. And it's not always the thing that works best, but to call people in rather than calling people out. And I think that it's a better option to do that, like before you choose to call someone out. So I went up to the student and told them, look, your paper is racist. And if you want to figure out more about how it's racist, there's a number of resources you could look at. So I felt that it went okay as, as confrontations go with students who are racist or professors who are racist. And I was an MA and this person was a PhD. So there's also kind of like a seniority. I don't know if that's the right word. There is a difference in our status. Power differential? Exactly. A power differential. Although we had started our MAs at the same time and we're part of our part of the same cohort at the beginning. But I found out that the student later had gone behind my back and talked to other white students about how their paper wasn't racist and they don't know why someone would critique them about that. And that kind of made me feel sad. <laughs> like, I think the ideal is that your cohort is like your family, like that's who you are actually learning from in school. But I think that white students are often given the privilege of seeing their education as an individualist venture. Whereas I think 
we tend to have more awareness of the community that it takes to actually succeed and the force that a community can bring to making change. And we also want that change because we're negatively affected by so many aspects of the institution. One of the things that I would like to add to that, we need to think of also the role of the institution in helping critique these kind of things and provide students with context before they engage in these kind of conversations. Because I'm pretty sure as the individuals were unaware or maybe they, they were aware, there is like a big part of that to the lack of, let's say, lack of initiatives or lack of diversity in the courses that they are offered by the institutions to provide like critical eye to why is that wrong? And why is these metaphors or these kind of analysis or these kind of readings are problematic? And I think the tools that the institution can provide are valuable and priceless. However, the institutions, from my point of view, insist on using the old tools in order to explain texts or in order to analyze texts or as a lens to see certain kind of literary works in just this very stagnant way. Instead of trying to go outside of your comfort zone, look at what's happening outside, that will give you the kind of perspective to self-reflect on what you know or what you think you know. So what I'm saying is, it's the institution that has another important part that the institution should play in correcting this kind of behavior. Yeah, I totally agree. And one of the things after that incident happened, I remember I was talking to Shu and I was like, how could we have let this happen? We were the ones vetting the papers. But I think the thing is that that paper even made it to the vetting process, which means that it passed the supervision of a professor at the graduate level, it passed all stages of preparation. And I learned later also that another student had brought up the same concerns with a paper in class, but had been shot down by both the student and professor. So that's just another level of microaggressions that led to a much larger public presentation of anti-Black ableist discrimination that further harmed more people in the community. And I think the three of us have definitely read the kind of literature that, you know, talks about this exact issue. Like I'm thinking of the Audre Lorde quote, the master's tools whenever dismantle the master's house. And kind of this awareness that it becomes foundational to how we learn, how we study, how we interact with academia and cohorts that we are interacting with. But this is not the same kind of knowledge that a lot of white students necessarily have to deal with because this isn't what they're interested in studying and there has never been systems or reasons for them to really kind of learn it because the very structures are not there to break down the foundational structures that continue to harm people. And I think that was one of the most tragic elements of the vetting process that we've gone through because I think the goal to have a committee that is dedicated to these ideas that we are going to be providing more radical, more marginalized voices means that we're trying to view all of these proposals through a very particular lens or so doing this in good faith. And so when we saw the proposal, we were like, 
obviously this proposal is going to challenge these assumptions that we have. This proposal is going to be anti-racist and not continue to uphold these ideas that we have deemed and we have recognized are problematic. And I think that becomes part of the systems that we're very much trying to work through, where it's like our good faith uh, and our assumptions doesn't always necessarily line up because the system is still there and the system will continue to perpetuate these problems. And I'm, I'm also glad that both of you talking about microaggressions in academia, which is like a good segue to move to this question that I would like to ask Shu, because both of you were on that committee in the vetting committee and I chaired a panel in that conference. And now Shu, I want to ask you, how would you describe the microaggressions in academia? And what are some of the ways that we manage to challenge some of the institutional barriers? I think with everything else that is related to systematic prejudice, systematic problems, it's very difficult to kind of describe succinctly or comprehensively. The thing that I am currently kind of facing and dealing with the most right now is just this constant wear and tear and reminder that the academy gives you with its readings, with its kind of privileging of certain voices. And oftentimes it's explicit, like the comprehensive exam was a very explicit, obvious way of kind of being like, your voices don't matter. These are the voices that matter. But I think even amongst quote unquote woke circles, uh, even among progressive fields of study, there are times where what you end up reading become this very subtle way of reminding you of why something doesn't matter or why something matters more than others. For example, the children's lit list, I had a hand in creating it. The people who ended up creating it are all excellent, amazing people who really have an eye for not just diversity, but also like the voices that really need to be upheld and heard. But despite having all of these really amazing creative texts, so we have like The Hate You Give, we have The Meryl Thieves, we have really interesting books that are kind of challenging the status quo, challenging this idea of a hegemonic literary foundation of children's literature. The theories that I am reading are still based on the canon. It's still based on Victorian literature. It stems from this lineage that comes from, you know, children's let starting out with the Puritans, moving on to something like Peter Pan, continuing on through the 50s. It's this very particular white childhood that doesn't necessarily speak to the experiences that I want to talk about in my own research, uh, nor does it necessarily speak to the rest of the books on the list, because how do you end up aligning this person who traced the lineage through European, specifically Anglo- children's literature to a global children's book. And the way that you do that is with that very problem that we talk about in the comprehensive exam, which is like you do the additional legwork, you do the additional labor, you go the extra mile to kind of do the comparisons, to talk about it, to break it down, to challenge the various foundations that, you know, is supposed to make up the field that you're entering. And so for me, that kind of becomes foundational to what I understand as 
the microaggressions of just like in my own individual research, this is what is given to me. And this is the barriers that I kind of have to wade through. That in and of itself becomes very difficult for a lot of marginalized students to kind of go through, that like you are dealing with this thing on your own. But I think what compounds upon it is when you go into the department and you end up dealing with the additional micro racism uh, and sometimes explicit racism within the department. So questions of like the legitimacy of what you study whenever you talk about what it is that you study. I get that a lot more when I'm outside of the department because already they're like, oh, you study English. That's a useless humanities. But the moment you start being like, this is the exact field I study, they're like, ooh, not into that. Like, what even is the importance of it? I think the aggression, the microaggressions that you face from professors and students, when they give you certain talking points that I think all departments are given, where they're like, oh, no, no, we, we care about your concerns, um, and then they don't do anything about it. When you are trying to look for particular resources and they're not given to you because, you know, they are also unaware of the resources that are out there because they have never had a reason to study that particular lack inside of their own foundational knowledge. And so I think all of those become compounded. I think the letters that we ended up sending being like, stop telling us that you care and actually do something about this. You're creative writers. You should know. Show, don't tell. Please do better. I think all of those just end up compounding on top of each other. And that becomes this unspoken kind of ghost that lingers over your shoulder, just trying to deal with the systems that are imposed while dealing with this loneliness that, you know, you constantly have to talk to other grad students and you're like, am I the one overreacting? Am I, you know, being overdramatic about these problems that I am having that no one else seems to be having or like the only other person who is having this is another BIPOC student who is also dealing with way too much on their plate. This is interesting really because I hear that from most students who are doing this kind of active or activism because they do feel at certain point this kind of like they start to suspect their own motives or their own ideas or, or why are we doing that? And it's important at this point to find a community that share the same ideas and beliefs in order to give us this kind of support that we need. Because I don't believe that the institution is able to give this back to us. I believe most institutions are intrinsically colonial, and therefore it's against themselves to do that. And it's against what they were built upon. And it's against everything that they believe in, this form of activism. So most activists, they do feel at certain points this kind of like, oh, I might be wrong. I might be doing the wrong thing. And at certain points, like this becomes internalized. Therefore, it weakens sometimes the individuals. And I believe of communities that will support you to move forward with your with the efforts that you are trying to do to dismantle the structure of colonialism around us. You also talked about a very important point, how sometimes we take texts and we study them within European theories, which is, again, it reminds me of 
imposing one indigenous text in the course, then the course will be completely taught in a European text. And even the indigenous text in our courses will be taught in a European theory, which you would be wondering how effective is that and how many questions we need to raise on this process of including just one indigenous text way out of context. And you actually raised so many things and the letters that uh, gonna lead me to ask Trin about her famous letter that you sent to the institution that strongly challenges the institution and even challenging us to think and unlearn and relearn what we been doing forever. Yeah, I was thinking when she was talking about microaggressions as well, I think I've read this somewhere, but I really believe that microaggressions don't exist. It's all aggression. It doesn't matter if someone is like, ooh, let me touch your hair, or like someone's shouting racist slurs at you. Like eventually the long-term effects of that type of discrimination are going to be detrimental to someone's health and safety and ability to participate in community. And that's its purpose. But I guess to answer your question, the famous letter that I sent to the institution, I had just defended my thesis and George Floyd was murdered, I think a few weeks after but I, I was still working for the university. So I was, I was like not graduated yet, but still kind of part of the department living in a different city because of COVID, everything is online. And I had a lot of time to reflect on what was important to me. And people who've known me for a long time know that like, I, I guess characterize myself as like a pretty quiet, non-confrontational person, but nothing, makes me more upset than hypocrisy in institutions and in my undergrad I had a pretty traumatic exchange with a professor about racism that ended up going nowhere and I I felt gaslit by the institution and I was like I can't I can't let that happen again this time if I'm going to say something it's not going to be the way the institution wants me to say it it's going to be the way that I want to say it and the way that I think drives home the point incontrovertibly. So basically I I wrote a letter with suggestions about what people could do to change the way that things are racist. I don't know if I believe that the institution can ever be decolonized or I guess become, yeah, anti-racist, but I had a few suggestions that I think would make it a little better. Some of those suggestions were just not paying white cisgender male (laughs) tenure track profs more than literally everybody else (laughs) giving more tenure track positions to to faculty that are doing things that aren't based in canonical work and holding people accountable in classrooms when they say something racist and actually doing the work of evaluating and updating curriculums on a regular basis. And I knew proposing this, that these were all things that people would see as too much to ask. The people who are already doing it are already doing it. And I also called out 
all of the faculty and specific students for their, I guess we'd call it microaggressions, but like basically racist or queerphobic or transphobic behavior throughout their time at the University of Calgary. And I wasn't sure about it when I, when I wrote it. I wrote it the day that I sent it or got a friend to read it at the meeting because I wasn't able to attend. And I, I wasn't there to see the reaction. I wish I had been. I wish I'd been able to attend and read it myself. But basically, I had no stakes left. <laughs> that was my attitude. It must be something deep, right, that affects you to give you this energy or like the power. Because you said you are shy and non-confrontational. There must be something so deep that drives you to write this letter. I think the biggest thing that drove me to write that letter was the conversations I had with other students within a whisper network of racialized students at the University of Calgary. I was aware of things that had happened behind closed doors. You know, it's not enough to like bring up to the faculty because it's a microaggression or it would be perceived as like, oh, maybe, maybe that's kind of like borderline racist, but I'd heard a lot, a lot, a lot of things about some specific students, some about students that I wouldn't expect to hear from personally, like the way that I experience racism is mostly through microaggressions. And I'm like a mixed race black person and mixed with European settlers. So not everyone behaves the same way around me as they do like dark skinned black women. But I just heard so many disappointing things from so many people that I couldn't hold it inside myself anymore. I realized the person that I was holding all of those situations and like things that had happened to people around me in for was not for those people. It was for the institution and to make it more comfortable for me to be there while I was there. And sorry here, but I want to like remind everyone else that this episode, we mean you, it's something for self-reflection, right? Because we talk about individuals and we always wonder the center of this episode is the institution and how the institution functions and how the institution forces things upon us. So this is an invitation to the institution to think that we mean them. This is, we mean, and had those students been exposed to, again, diversity, to, to different authors, to different theories, away from the comfort zone, do you think that would lead to different results in their engagement in literature and in conferences and even in everyday life? Yeah, I think it definitely would provide a different perspective for a lot of people. I don't think it's the only thing, though, because the real enemy of throughout all of this is white supremacy. And that's something that has to be abolished at a higher level than the university. But yeah, I, I think naming people specifically, that's what had been avoided the entire time that I was at the University of Calgary. And I understand why racialized students do not name names because it can be detrimental to the rest of their education. So being finished my education, I was like in a good position to actually name names because I was not planning on going back to the institution necessarily anytime soon, or I don't know if I ever will, even though I love learning. I don't really love learning in that context. 
So I thought it was important to call those people to action specifically to learn more. No one else is going to do that for them, but whether or not they actually listen when someone tells them that they're in the wrong is not up to Bef- <laughs> Before I move to Shir, do you think this is another invitation for the institution to clearly state that activism is okay? Like we will not be vengeful. We will be okay with your criticism. Can you uh, explain a little bit more Because there are some students who would be worried to be part of any kind of activism because that's threatening and they might not get jobs, they might not get offers, they might not get anything because of their activism. Do you think this is an invitation to these kind of discussions, an invitation to the institution to make sure in a way or another, that it's okay to be inactive, it's okay to criticize the institution. We will not be vengeful, we will not revenge, we will not stop funding, or we will offer you jobs, even though you are an activist. I don't know if the institution's capable of not being vengeful. As you were saying earlier, it's at its core a colonial institution, and the whole point of colonialism is to pillage and take what they like and then, you know, subsume it and become it and then spit it back out the way that they find works best for them. And I don't think true activism will ever serve the institution, but I do think it's maybe an invitation for students who feel like there will be consequences for them participating in activism to find their community because as a community, people are able to support each other and work more as a force and avoid that type of gaslighting to a greater degree. Thank you for the, your insight on that. That's absolutely interesting. And now I will move to Shu and ask her. After Trin's letter, grad students held many meetings that you were part of them, and I was too. How do you describe the atmosphere and the reaction to the changes that we, like Indigenous, Black, and People of Color students, what do you think of their reaction and during those meetings? I think the very best way to describe their reactions was reactionary. Like there was this pivotal moment that had occurred. And so that drove a whole bunch of people to show up. But that doesn't mean that we have any of the changes that we were hoping for. That doesn't mean that there was any kind of long-term dedication or any kind of long-term action that was really being done. I feel like if I were to go up to a not insignificant portion of them and be like, hey, what do you think of this issue that we brought up over the summer? They would have forgotten it already. And that is both disappointed but not surprised. And I think that becomes kind of the foundation where it's like the people who are most driven are gonna continue to stay driven before they burn out. (laughs) But the way that, so many had been motivated, who had been so vocal about their support of Black students, about how much they want to support us, how much they want to do a statement about how, you know, this department is a racist, this department loves the BIPOC students, and haven't done anything that could really be called institutional change, uh, or even small, minute, granular change. Like, I think there is something 
that is disheartly and disingenuous about talking about how you know you really want to support your BIPOC students but not actually do anything to really support the BIPOC students when it comes down to it. I think there is something really disheartening about being like, we want to put out a statement, but not actually committing to doing anything. And I think for the grad student meetings that we all ended up attending, there was something very, very disingenuous about someone putting in the bare minimum effort of showing up maybe once and then never doing any kind of active work again. You brought the idea I might invite Trin and yourself to to talk about the idea of allyship because there is a kind of misconception or different ways of understanding how to be an ally because sometimes people sitting behind their keyboards with their comfort zones, they would think that they are good allies. And there is this idea that we wrote about in our letter about that politics of comfort and allyship usually are don't work together. They are uh, mutually exclusive. So allyship requires taking some kind of risks and feeling the pressure and going through hardships. It cannot be done easily because as much as you achieve, it means you need to push more, to push more and more, push the limits, I mean. So how do you see each of you, you can start. How do you see, or what do you think of allyship? I think a lot of the time people will use the word ally to avoid culpability and critique, which is not what being an ally is. Uh, One of our professors at the University of Calgary talks about how allyship is done. It's not a label. And I really believe that's true because all of us are in different intersections of identities and have some privilege and some places where we're marginalized. We're all in an interweb of communities and we're all accountable to each other, whether we want to believe that or not. So it's all in the ways that we make our relationships and we support each other, even through disagreements, which is sometimes extremely difficult. And that's, I think, why it's so hard to be a good ally or to practice allyship. Sure. I really like what Trinda said about the ways that we practice solidarity and allyship, because I think one of the things that become most disheartening for me is when there isn't an attempt, a constant dedication to move forward. Because I think for so many people, allyship is the goalpost. And like, you just constantly kind of like straddle that line. As long as you're never full racist, like you're good. And that's not necessarily true because it's this constant work and this constant awareness and this dedication to being better for yourself and for your community and for other communities and I think that becomes this really difficult process for a lot of people to get behind because you're no longer just being like okay I won't be racist you're not just you know 
non-racist, but you have to be actively anti-racist. Uh, and oftentimes that involves unlearning and redoing and relearning all of these ideas that you've kind of taken for truth or that you just never necessarily thought you would have to encounter. Like this request becomes much easier to ignore uh, when you are further removed from the most pivotal areas, the most momentous regions of identity, like when your very existence becomes part of this point where, you know, there's no way for you to kind of avoid being in this world that is constantly talking about your relationship to other people and your existence. Um, whereas I think it becomes easier for some people to feel themselves removed, to be like, I'm going to take a step back because I can. And that in itself is a form of privilege. I think so much of the allyship that we talk about is kind of dependent upon the very systems that we exist in. Uh, and with the title of this podcast being We Mean You, it's like we're very much asking everyone to take those moments to continue to work to be better. Yeah, it's not just only white students either. Like everyone's participating in this institution. All of us have participated in this institution and we've been wrong before, but it's the willingness to, to change and <laughs> work past the goalposts <laughs> and try to find a place where we can actually be safe and learn things that we wanna learn. That's really the dream, that's it. Well, well that's gonna lead me also to ask both of you about the institution again. Through the response to your letter, because for sure, Trin, the institution will respond and they did. They didn't disappoint us, they did respond. I'm not gonna dig deep into their response, but the question is the surprise that the institution showed us. Like they were surprised that we have all of these issues about racism and how the institution is involved in systematic racism. And there was this kind of sense of surprise on their behalf that we have all of these issues, which makes me ask both of you, how do you see this kind of discrepancy between how do we see the institution and how they see themselves? Because it looks like we are talking about two different things here. They see themselves as engaging, willing to change all of this rhetoric that they use every day. But in reality, when there is action, we see lack of it actually, we don't see action and we don't see the way that they think they are. This question is so frustrating for me to think about because I got exactly the type of response that I expected from the institution. They were basically like, it's unacceptable to name names when talking about who's perpetuated white supremacy in our department. It's cool that we all wanna be anti-racist, but like we can only be anti-racist in the way that the institution wants us to be anti-racist, <laughs> which is actually not anti-racist at all. So that's kind of like the stock response is just, this white guilt or tears being like, oh, I feel so bad that you had this experience of racism, but really doing nothing major to fix it. Like, I, I think it ignored the fact that it's not just hurt feelings. It's way more than that. It's like financial discrimination. It's discrimination through courses. It's discrimination on so many levels that they're not willing to change. They just think that they're doing enough by getting a stamp of approval from the university on decolonization and putting a page up on their website. 
when we talk about the disheartening response from the department, we do need to talk about these bigger questions about stirring up the boat, the ways that we are putting ourselves and our future is very much at risk. And these questions of tenure that we talk so much about, and fairly rarely in this context of how does that change your behavior and how does that change your existence as allies? Because I think that becomes something that becomes fundamental to how I view this department. There are some people who are willing to stick their necks up for us to do the change necessary to amplify the concerns of grad students and who are not and who are in a state of vulnerability because they may not have tenure, who may view tenure as a way that they are no longer touchable. Like I think one of the things that become most frustrating and difficult for me is so much of academia is this game of politics. And I think what Trin has voiced as this frustration where it's like, you know, you can only behave in these ways that the institution has approved of becomes yet another way that these microaggressions compound upon each other. It becomes very disheartening when people are like, hey, I don't want to rock the boat because I have goals for this job or I have goals for, you know, certain tenure. I am afraid of the politics that would kind of stem from it. And I think that becomes one of the reasons why when we talk about the department, so much of it is through this lens of kind of disheartenment. What else can you feel other than disheartened when you know that we're all kind of entangled in this web that doesn't allow us to really make any kind of a response? Like the comprehensive exam has been held up by so many people as this point of victory. The comprehensive exam has become this huge point for the department that every time someone brings up, oh, this department is racist. They're like, oh, but we abolished the comprehensive exam. Look how progressive we are. And it's like, no, no, you don't get to claim that victory. Or like when grad students, white cis grad students are like, look at the amazing things that we've done. We abolished the comprehensive exam. It's like, yes, you eventually signed it, but you don't get to claim the victory the way that you think you do because the amount of work and labor and vulnerability that kind of went into it, you didn't have to necessarily experience. The first four days that the letter was sent out before uh, Larissa, thank you, Larissa, uh, signed, and we ended up getting a whole bunch of signatures because people felt that because it has been amplified by a professor, it is now safe to do so. But those first three days, it was this constant state of, did we just do something monumentally stupid? Like, did we just destroy our entire academic future by signing this letter that went against department, the very system that we are a part of? Are we ever going to get hired because we ended up being labeled as troublemakers? And I think that continuously happens as we are like trying to hold systems accountable, where it's like you, the individual, if there are repercussions, will deal with monumentally more stuff than an institution. I have kind of a question that I was like always wondering while I was at university, because it just didn't make any sense to me that profs are so reluctant 
to sign letters or like say anything on behalf of students or really listen to students or stand by students when they're protesting. I just don't understand what they think they're going to lose. Because from our perspective, or at least from my perspective, I guess, these profs who have tenure are kind of at the most stable point in their career to potentially make change and not face any repercussions. And meanwhile, like, she's writing letters, we're signing letters that may affect our careers. But for me, the thing is, that's not an institution I want to be part of if it's going to continue to be racist. So it's not a future that I'm concerned about losing because it's not the future I will personally enjoy living in anyway. And I'd rather like try and fail than like have to go by every day living in the institution as it is now. But there's many profs who will acknowledge that these problems exist, but then will not participate in the conversation surrounding like abolishing the comprehensive exam, for example, or even the against anti-Blackness statement that they wanted to put out that they didn't end up putting out because it was performative and terrible. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy for that question because that's actually reality to us. It's not the ether, it's not theory, it's our daily lives here. And I think part of it, some people didn't grow from the 70s and they're still living in that age where like they are worried and they actually think there's something wrong is gonna happen if they speak out, which is problematic because that culture of fear being again transformed or transferred to be more accurate from the institution to the grad students because grad students are looking up at the professors and at the institution and how the institution behaves Therefore, it gonna be transferred to them. And we will never move forward as long as this culture of fear is around us. And there's something else to it is linked to the idea of being an ally and where some people misunderstand these concepts where they can do it at their own comfort as we spoke earlier, where they can, oh yeah, claiming that you are an ally without actually taking risks because it doesn't work. It's a fight against racism, it's a, it's a fight against the system. And it cannot be done easily. You cannot do it easily. You need to expect some troubles in the road ahead and you need to be willing to take that. And I think a combination of fear and people living in a past mentality is what leads some to think in this way. And unfortunately you see some grad students are repeating these kind of phrases that they are worried if they do that, but you ask them, you are worried of what actually? Are you in a kind of police country where like the police will come and trace your record on Zoom to see if you engage in some kind of grad student meeting and you were vocalizing some issues? Do you think somebody will come and get you or you will not get a job about it? So I think there's like a combination of both fear and some kind of old school mentality to that. Sure, I wonder if you want to add to that. I relate to this constant state of fear that students talk about. It's it's this constant juggling act between what Trin has said, where it's like, you know, if this is what prevents me from getting a job, I don't know if that's an institution I want to be a part of. But also this constant, I guess, voice in the back of my head being like, you are dedicating years of your life to academia to this institution why would you do this if it's not for an end goal 
and like we can talk all we want about you know learning for the sake of learning publishing for the sake of putting additional knowledge out into the world but i think there is that constant financial fear about what does it mean for me to go through having spent all of this money having worked all of these years if it's not for this final end goal of an academic job where hopefully I'll be able to help make the system even better there's a part of me that feels extremely empathetic for those who are like I don't want to put my future at risk the thing is is that there's also that question where it's like your future but at the cost of who's present and I think that's one of the questions that I regularly have when it comes to debates about allyship where it's like we're talking about not just the future right now but it's like what are you doing in the present that will become part of the past that is worth thinking about when it comes to building towards that future you're making me think because the present really is the future right now we can feel the repercussions of past presence on on our (laughs) current environmental and social situations but like what we're dreaming about and what we're thinking about right now is what is going to affect the future and so if we don't put that out there in the present what are we working for this will eventually become what people look towards in the past i sometimes look back on fairly recent activism and it's like this wouldn't have happened if people didn't take that risk and take that stand. I think that becomes part of the narrative that we should be continuously talking about when we talk about allyship, which is like, you know, you are going to become part of the past. What would future you say about present you? Would they be proud? Like that question was like, are you on the right side of history? I think needs to take on a new form especially as we continuously adapt and grow and change towards hopefully a better form and a better model. Yeah. And sorry to add a new big thought, like right at this end. Also, I should stop apologizing, but allyship is maybe the wrong word to use for the work that needs to be done because the work that needs to be done is abolition of white supremacy. And as much as we can push boundaries and catalyze reactions the people who need to be doing the hardest work are those who are most closely tied to white supremacy. The people who have the most money, the people who have the most privilege at the tops of these institutions. And until that's in their interests, there's not going to be fast radical change. Like we can keep working, but like it's slow work for us and we need to sustain ourselves. I feel from both of your responses that, and I do believe that too, it's for us, English as a field is completely different than other people's English, right? It's realities to us. It's not ether. It's not just European theorization. It's daily lives. It's like it affects everything we do. When we talk about jobs, we talk about how to produce work. There's lots of emotional labor involved in our English. That is our English. That is completely different than other people's English. So I'm wondering, trend here, if you talk about that in your writing, whether it's poetry or like fiction, nonfiction. Yeah, I talk about this constantly in my writing because, yeah, you're right. The Englishes that we study are a different type of English than 
English literature is supposed to be, I guess, because it's hard to picture yourself in an English literature that actively talks about enslavement as like a good thing or (laughs) a variety of Orientalist concepts that are somehow still circulating. But I do write about this for my thesis. I wrote speculative fiction about (laughs) when capitalism reaches its peak and people just do space colonialism and like leave the most marginalized populations behind and everyone's chilling but also affected by like the environmental destruction caused on our planet so I I don't know those are the kind of the futures I imagine currently and like writing is a way for me to to just exercise that for my body because it's a lot to think about all the time and like going through your day-to-day life being like hmm I wonder if the like (laughs) plastic water bottle I drank out of today is going to like massively affect our future because corporations are evil and is there a specific is there a specific work that you you think it's very related to these issues when i was at the university of calgary i actually didn't take very many courses where i felt that i wasn't learning what i wanted to be learning which was a huge privilege because i'm in creative writing that i was able to study with the people that i really really wanted to study and do the things that I really wanted to do. But I did one project in a poetic avant-garde class where I dressed up as a ghost and made cut up poetry out of Bart's Death of the Author to like talk about how when the author is someone from a marginalized identity, they shouldn't die because that's a further violence and we should consider their perspective as their perspective rather than like mapping a white perspective on top of it, which is, you know, the ghost costume. It was also very fun and funny. So I, I think about it constantly about the different ways that we perform, whether it's performing heteronormativity or like performing a certain type of racial acceptability in a public space. And I, I try to put that into everything I write because I think it's important both as like a record, as a witnessing and as a way to leave it behind and move somewhere else. Sure. Do you talk about these things also in your writing, if you have something to say about that? Because I do a lot more critical writing than creative writing these days, I think it does become kind of foundational to what I think and how I think. This idea that not only are you challenging but you are actively writing anew is this very foundational idea. Like, I think when people say to marginalized students, like, this is why your work is important. This is why you need to stay in the academy. That becomes part of it. I think the same way that creative writing becomes this generative process, there are ways for critical writing for people whose voices are usually not heard in academia for it to become a creative process where they are making things anew. And I think that's what makes it important and exciting that not only are you challenging, not only are you reiterating, but you are very much creating something that has never really been seen before because the Academy can only, you know, stifle so many voices for so long. Thank you for both of you. My question now is the last 
one, a number of professors who are specialized in the canon and the reality for the administrations of English departments. How can they go around that? Because they still need to offer courses that matches their professors and their specialization. What do you think of this for the administration? So the problem is that there's profs that are specialized in the canon and those courses need to be filled because they've hired those profs already. Why can't they change that? Change what? Why can't they change that like regulation? Is it because of the university? No, no. The question is we already have these professors and we are not looking forward to the future. We are already having those professors on hand. And now we have this group of professors in front of us. So how can we deal with this issue? So first of all, can I just say that like there is a huge amount of privilege attached to this idea that you get to teach what you specialize in that has never been offered to most of our marginalized and BIPOC profs. All of the BIPOC profs that I have ever had can do a huge range of topics, a huge range of literatures. The sheer number of times where the only racially marginalized professor ends up teaching all of the POCO, PERICO, anti-racist, quote-unquote, diversity literatures, the sheer number of times that I've seen them be able to teach, you know, the canon as well as anyone who specializes in the canon, I think it becomes another example, another symptom of the systems that people have to go through, that it's not enough for you to simply study what you study. To legitimize yourself, you need to study what everyone else also study. And so I think it's not wrong for us to be like, please put in a little more effort, do a fraction of the amount of labor that your peers and your colleagues are already doing, and to learn, expand your worldview, expand your field just a little bit more to make it a little more inclusive. There are ways for you to be like, I'm going to actually learn what else is there in my field of study. Because it's not like Europe exists in a bubble back in the day. They were colonizing and there are repercussions and results and reverberations that came from all of that colonization. There are literatures that exist. There are intersections where like, there are moments when you know, the white man tried to colonize and pillage another area. Um, yeah, there are points and times where like, you know, those reverberations and those colonizations had interactions with other literatures. And like, you're not getting a fully comprehensive view of your own field if you don't take that into consideration. And so, yeah, we're just asking that people do the bare minimum effort of occasionally looking outside of what they've already specialized in because their colleagues have already been doing that for years, for decades. I will give the train also the chance to add to that, but we also can can think of the same field can be re-energized, right? If you, if I'm teaching medieval studies, like there's that as many texts as there is now, and which is like very few texts in medieval studies that students all the time read. We read it in the undergrad. We read, it's not just medievalism, it's all the traditional fields. They can be revitalized their field by engaging with different issues instead of the same 
ones that we are reading over and over and over. Like last semester, I was teaching this place, which is comics from Turtle Island, and you barely find any art because it's a new book. You barely find any articles about or secondary sources about it. But going to do any kind of work on the traditional ones, you just need to hit the search bar and you will find an avalanche of results about anything you would think about, which is resources, again, it's on your hand. But when you think of other or new material that's coming out right now, it's not as easy as a traditional, which is another extra burden on people who are engaged of, of these indigenous or post-colonial studies, all, all these fields required lots of research to find some sources or resources. I'm just wondering, uh, Trent, if you have anything to add about that. My sister was telling me the other day that she's in design school for architecture, but someone suggested that they don't teach a course in a chronological order. And the faculty was like, what are we going to do? If we can't teach it in a chronological order, then we're like not giving an unbiased narrative of history. And everyone was like, what are you talking about? Like that is a very particularly biased narrative of history. So I think too, if you're teaching a class on medievalism, acknowledging that the way that we view medievalism now is already an interpretation of something that we will never be able to access unless we invent time travel. So including texts maybe from present day or like from later on that interpret medievalism even, I think that would be seen as pretty radical in the field of medievalism because usually it's very like, these are the facts and this is how people did things back then. But like, these things are all just our present, like keeping these texts in the present I think is essential and connecting them to things that are going on in our world right now so that we can actually use that knowledge to engage with our society in a way that reduces harm, I think is kind of the ideal. I took a class on the South Sea bubble and it was very historical, but we still used resources to talk about how colonization was affecting marginalized populations in that time. So there's lots of creative ways you can adjust your course. It's just a matter of the will, I guess, if you want to do it. The will and the hard work that comes with it. Yeah. Awesome. Trin and Chu, thank you so much for being part of this podcast. That was a really interesting conversation. And I think we can spend days and days here talking about these issues because they are part of our daily lives and academic life. So thank you so much for being part of this podcast. We hope you enjoyed this interview of Xu Yin Yu and Trindelaney by Mahmoud Ababni. I'm Paul Minier, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. Tea House recognizes the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stuckel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. 
Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Mahmoud Ababni, Rebecca Jelaine, Paul Minier, Joshua Whitehead, Ryan Stern, Mark Lynch, and Marge Rogunda. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.tiahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at tiahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.